I haven't mentioned the sternal <coughs> um, uh, devices or access devices with the interosseous. I have had uh, ha have attempted sternal access, but not never been successful in the yep. past where I've had to use the devices. And again, that you, you really need some training and practice for right. for that to work. And, uh Welcome to episode 26 of the Obsangani Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, this week, uh, once again, I have um, cornered Graham, who's kindly agreed um, we're going to do a talk today, and um, I'm just showing Graham a picture. So what is this picture of, Graham? That's a piece of toast being buttered. So bread, or it's actually it's supposed to be bread and butter. All right. Yeah, so... Yeah, I've got the wrong image. So yeah, what we're talking about today is um, bread and butter for anaesthetists. So we're going to talk about emergency vascular access options in, um, in patients. So uh, it's, good to, it's good to be back, Roger. And I just thought I'd ask, uh, how was the uh, recent ANSCA annual scientific meeting in Sydney? Um, it was good. Lots, lots of um, opportunities to uh, network with people. Uh, learned a few things. Um, I won't sort of um, go off on too many tangents, but the one interesting thing I did was um, I went for a, a workshop on the uh, on the Monday in the afternoon on mindfulness, which I found really useful. And uh, not not for my work, but certainly whenever my kids drive me crazy, now I know how to control my breathing and bring myself back to you know uh, a much better plane. <laughs> so yeah, anyone out there who's a parent, I really recommend uh, going to a mindfulness um, talk. All right, so I thought what we'll do, and I'll, I'll post this little um, uh, pricey of, of a case on the uh, on the website as well. So I thought I'll just present like a little um, hypothetical case, which is pretty similar to one or two cases I have had, and then we'll discuss the uh, the options for getting emergency vascular access. So let's pretend we have uh, you're faced with a 26 year old woman who's got a suspected ruptured ectopic pregnancy, and she's rushed into hospital. Uh, and she's um, in hemorrhagic shock and then she's sort of rushed basically from not long after arrival in the emergency department straight up to theatre because she's in shock and when she's in when she gets to theatre she you know you find out she has a history of an intravenous drug use and she's on a, she has a naltrexone implant and that some people have tried to gain some vascular access down the ED to get some you know to give her some fluid and take some blood for cross matching etc but they've just been unsuccessful and they thought right we've just got to get her up to theatre she's in a bad way and on arrival in the theatre, she's got, let's say, she has a heart rate of 150 and a blood pressure of 75 over 45. She's still conscious, um, but she's really uncooperative and distressed with abdominal pain. So she's not coping well with the pain. She's an IV drug user and she's on naltrexone. Um, but she's also obviously feeling pretty crap because she's in shock. Uh, and usually that causes a bit of agitation, doesn't it? And um, she's also pretty upset because for the last 45 minutes since she arrived in the hospital, she's had a lot of repeated and painful um, attempts by various staff members to get um, some line or some sort of vascular access or a line into her. So it's a pretty tricky scenario. Uh, I've certainly come across this personally myself and heard lots of other people come across these sorts of scenarios in the past. Um, uh, yeah, initial I mean, comments? I've, well, I've Great. cared for patients with um, not with all of the elements at one time, but with each of the elements at different times. So yep. patients with hemorrhagic shock and difficult IV access, or patients who are injecting drug users and uh, very difficult IV access uh, or patients who are uncooperative uncooper and have had multiple attempts at IV access. Yep. So 
And just before we get into that, we're going to talk about the different options in uh, um, specific detail. But before we get into that, I guess just in this scenario, we've got to sort of try and... Uh, there's a few other things that I, I think might come in useful. So one is um, maybe not so, so much in a ruptured ectopic, but if you can stop the bleeding. So while you're actually trying to get vascular access, there are people who can do things to stop the bleeding. So, you know, for example, in an obstetric hemorrhage, press on the aorta. Um, that might help get the circulation back uh, in a better condition. It might even make the veins a bit bigger and make your job easier. Um, but also trying to get some cooperation. So there's things you can do. You know, you, you can still use local anaesthetic just because um, just because it's an urgent situation doesn't mean you should be doing repeated attempts with 14 gauge cannulas um, without trying to give them some sort of analgesia. It only takes 10 seconds to mm. numb someone's skin. And also you can give them some intramuscular analgesia. So this woman, for example, you know, some intramuscular opioid, ketamine, or even midazolam, just to calm things down. So if she's thrashing around, giving you grief, it's going to be really hard to get something into her. Um, any other comments before we go no, through? No, I agree. Just yep. be careful with the uh, doses that you give if she's yeah. indeed this um, unstable. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. I think I would probably, because she's got an altrexone implant, I would probably give a little dose of intramuscular ketamine, yeah. uh, which might provide some analgesia. I don't know if opioids would work that well. How much would you give? A milligram per kilogram? Yeah, so I think um, so intramuscularly, um, that would be reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And certainly that would be a bit of an overdose in the IV. Um, exactly. Obviously you don't have an IV. So what are your options? Uh, so the first one I think we need to mention is um, peripheral intravenous cannulation in, a, in, a, in the upper limbs. Yes. But overlooked. But um, So, you know, two tourniquets on the uh, high up on both arms and and um, get some experience, the most experienced people you can, having a look with an ultrasound machine. Mm -hmm. You'd be surprised what you can find. Um, and, you know, ideally, large bore uh, peripheral IV in, in the upper limb. Usually it's going to be in sort of antecubital fossil region, but anywhere on the upper limb, that's what you're after. Yes. So, you know, st still go for that first, you know. Um, if that doesn't work... Um, what other options do we have? Yeah, I, I think it's important that we do what we do uh, most often because yep. we need to practice these techniques and we practice peripheral IV cannulation in the upper limbs frequently. Yeah, so I, I agree. That's, so that's why I think that should be the first option. So you've got to make sure you haven't actually missed a big vessel in the arm because we know how to, you know, that's what we do all the time. We're good at that mm -hmm. before we start pulling out um, interosseous um, yes. drills and um, various other things. Yeah, so th so that, that leads to the, um, the next techniques we can use. Yeah. So the use of intraosseous access is um, an option. Uh, it is recommended that uh, intraosseous needles go into the upper limb if possible uh, for these kinds of cases where there may be bleeding um, either from, well, possibly from venous structures in the, um, in the pelvis just to ensure that uh, whatever we administer through it does get to the uh, central circulation. Yep. And so that usually means the greater tuberosity of the humerus. That's right, yep. Um, I believe there are some limitations, though, in terms of flow rates that can be achieved through, uh, through that access. Um, and the numbers that come into my head are something like 80 mils uh, per hour, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough. Well, or, or per minute, do you mean? Oh, sorry, 80 mils per minute, yes. Yep. Um, so we should uh, delete that out. No, no, we'll leave it in. Okay, good. Um, it is still a lot. Uh, it, it also gives you an opportunity to take some blood, and uh, certainly I've used intraosseous specimens of 
um, uh, aspirate to get a uh, group and uh, screen. Um, yep. And it enables uh, administration of medications and yeah. volume. That's right. So you can give volume. You can give drugs to help support circulation like vasopressors. You can give analgesics or induce anesthesia, which can sometimes help get control of the situation. Yeah. I mean, 80, 80 mils a minute is not what you want. You want something faster than that. But 10 minutes hmm. times 10 minutes, you've, you've almost got a litre of volume into someone uh, within 10 minutes, and that's better than nothing. Yes, never been successful in the yep. past where I've had to use the devices. And again, that you, you really need some training and practice for, right. for that to work. And um, so I don't want to delve, uh, go into interosseous devices for too long because I actually want to get onto what we're good at, which is um, uh, the big vessels in the neck. But um, there are some really interesting YouTube videos of um, uh, army medics mm. in, the, in the US Army uh, sticking sternal interosseuses into each other. And there's a lot of hoo-ha, hoo-ha sort of stuff going on. But... Um, so that is uh, definitely a recommended um, tech, uh, well, no, a technique that is taught, but fills me with a bit of trepidation. Mm. Uh, you make sure you get the right sized needle and it doesn't go through the back side of the sternum. There's a few interesting vessels and things that go lub-dub underneath it. So, okay. um, right. So um, and then so then so probably the, the the option that most of us will then choose um, if we if we fail in the arms or uh, we're not comfortable with uh, interosseous in the humerus. And I, I don't think we should, you know, I think you should consider the interosseous in the humerus because it's pretty easy, um, even though we don't do it a lot. But most of us as anesthetists or anesthesiologists, which was one of the debates at the conference, uh, most of us have stuck things in people's necks quite a lot. So we're pretty familiar with that. And you can do that relatively quickly and safely. So what are the main uh, options for, for vascular abscess? What vessels do we usually go for? Yeah, I mean, so I, we usually go for the internal jugular vein uh, for various reasons. Yep. What are the other ones? Failing that, the external jugular or the subclavian vein. Yep. So I must say that when I'm just trying to get a quick peripheral line in, uh, I tip them head down and have a look, see if I've got some good external jugular veins. Because if I can see some big distended external jugular veins, um, that's what I'll go for. The, the the internal jugular and the subclavian are a bit deeper and usually, although we'll talk about this in a minute, usually you're doing like a formal central line, which takes a bit longer. Um, but you don't have to... Uh, if, uh, if it's a life-threatening time pressure, you can speed that process up a bit, which we'll maybe we'll talk about in a second. Um, should we talk about the external jugular first and then move on to the internal jugular and the subclavian? What do you reckon? Well, do you want to talk about uh, the kind of line that you'd ideally want? Yep, we can do. We'll talk, you to, talk about that later. No, yeah. no, you go for it. What are you, so what are your well, eyes, so what are you my, my preference for? is a thing called the MAC line, which is the multi-lumen uh, uh, access catheter. Yep. Uh, and I believe its size is seven French. Yep. And uh, the reason I like it is because it is uh, um, st- uh, straight, uh, provides the capacity to provide uh, high volume resuscitation quickly, and also it does have the potential for a conduit for placing a central, uh, sorry, a central line for. Um, some other monitoring purposes. That's right. So, in someone who's having uh, a major hemorrhage or is in hypovolemic shock, you want to give be able, you want to be able to give um, large amount of volume of fluid and blood products r- relatively rapidly. So, a bit like what we were taught in the uh, part one exam. You know, what's the equation? Um, and the, what who's, was was the guy's name? Is it Hagen Poisson? Yeah, the Hagen Poisson equation. Which mm. uh, Hagen? I don't know if that's French, but Poisson sounds pretty French. Yes. Yeah. So basically, short is good and. Uh, uh, Large the larger radius. the radius is better so the resistance to flow so a long a traditional long 
thin central line yeah is actually quite puts up quite a lot of resistance to uh, rapid um, flow so you can't actually pump in a large amount of um, volume quickly so a short large bore peripheral line like a 40 engage uh, or greater peripheral IV or um, one of these large uh, lines in the neck uh, under the subclavian so the MAC line is good yes. but likewise any any large central access um, catheter like a hemodialysis catheter or a swan sheath they all work as well they do yeah. the MAC line is good though because it's designed for this and it's really simple to use I think and mm. um, it's just got everything in there um, so we and I must admit I don't put um, large bore central lines in very much anymore when I do I just use that yes um, so that's good and so we'll talk about um, uh, the external jugular next because that's what I've got on my list so the external jugular is easy to find so you, you can the tips that I have are um, that obviously putting someone head down um, helps for two reasons one it will um, distend the vein so you can see it and two when you do access the central vein uh, you've got to be you've got to be careful about air embolism especially in hypovolemic states um, so if the patient's sitting head up and you access any any vascular structure any venous structure in the in the head or neck um, if you're above the um, the level of the uh, you know venous pressure in the right side of the heart then mm -hmm. you will entrain air and that was that would be catastrophic so that makes it safer as well so the other thing you can do, you've got to try and, un unlike the um, limbs, you can't put a tourniquet on, so how are you going to sort of distend it and keep it distended? And the best methods for that is the Valsalva manoeuvre. If they have um, an airway, um, mm. you can still do use a Valsalva manoeuvre on the, on the ventilator or maybe just turn up the peep. Mm. If you ever worry about uh, hemodynamic instability. Yeah, being aware that doing that in someone who is already cardiovascular compromised may actually tip them over the end. So, so doing a Valsalva manoeuvre drops their venous return so that might precipitate um, serious cardiovascular collapse so just be a bit careful about that mm. um, so it's a bit of a catch-22 but you've got to get your yeah you've got to gain vascular access somehow um, do you ever the, find the external jugular a little bit um, tortuous yep so that's the main problem with it, is sometimes in, in people with short fat necks you can't see it but also um, it enters the subclavian on an acute angle and as it goes under the clavicle it does a little bit of a Z um, kink and and uh, so it's hard to get the catheter or if you're using a Seldinger technique the wire to um, to go past that um, so that's a bit of a problem so when I uh, so it doesn't always work you know, and I guess if it doesn't work you move on to other things but when I do it I usually get someone to press the tip of the external jugular against the clavicles and that distends it a bit more mm -hmm. um, I usually get a five mil syringe with two mils of saline in it, and I sort of aspirate as I as I go in, yep. a bit like when you're placing a central line to try and get a flashback, and then try and advance a little bit further and then thread it off. And uh, if if you're having trouble seeing the external jugular, using the ultrasound can help. I find you've got to be really delicate and how and not put much pressure on the neck at all with the ultrasound probe though, because you're just basically it just you can just occlude it or yes. uh, flatten it really easily, um, which is counterproductive. Uh, and then some other other tips that I've read about, which I haven't tried, but I will definitely try in the future if I ever have trouble, is something called the shrug technique, which I was reading about the other day. Was um, basically once you've, if you've got um, into the external jugular, but you can't feed the, uh, your wire or your catheter, if you make the if you make that limb the limb on that side uh, into a shrug, so basically lift the shoulder up so that the clavicle comes up towards the head. So, so imagine shrugging. It's hard to hard to um, 
I'm making the motion, but you guys can't ab- see me because it's a podcast. Ab- abducting <laughs> the ipsilateral shoulder. So you'd imagine the shoulder is coming up towards the patient's ear. So that's shrugging. Yes. So the clavicle is now heading vertically. It's not going to be completely vertical. But that basically straightens the external jugular out, gets rid of that kink, and it sort of enters into the subclavian in a, on a straight angle. And there's a really good paper from some surgeons who are placing sort of tunneled lines where they used to have only 70% success putting um, t- their tunneled lines in, in the theatre. Uh, and, it, and then uh, it changed to 100% over um, over four or 500 insertions when they use the shrug technique. So that's a really good tip if you're trying to use the Seldinger technique to cannulate the external jugular. All right, let's move on. So what about the internal jugular? So that um, it takes, you know, it takes a long time to put a central line in, Graham. You know, usually by the time everyone goes to get the kits, you've got to gown up, you've got to clean the neck, get the ultrasound on. You know, tw- we're talking 20 minutes while someone's dying. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily <coughs> agree with that. Uh, when it's an emergent sis- uh, situation, providing you, you are prepared with um, an aseptic technique, prepping, prepping the skin and uh, placing an internal jugular line doesn't have to take a long time. That's right. Um, <coughs> your sepsis or your antisepsis may be uh, less than ideal and that needs to be considered as time goes on with caring for the patient. But uh, in, in, in a rest situation, I know that I've um, placed MAC lines in patients who've been um, stabbed in the chest, for example, and had um, emergency thoracotomies and or had um, significant burns where it's taken less than a minute. That's right, yeah. So everything's relative, isn't it? So mm. if someone, um, the risk-benefit is relative. So obviously what, if someone survives whatever um, traumatic event they're going through and uh, or you, and you manage to stabilise them, then you can you can um, put in a formal, more aseptically placed line uh, on the other side or somewhere else in the in the, the vascular tree and remove that device which was put in in sort of urgent circumstances. But you don't have to go through all the usual things. Doesn't mean you shouldn't clean the skin and use no. sterile gloves and um, don't touch the wire, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can get a, um, get these devices in within a matter of minutes if you if you um, if you don't go through all of the formal. Um, techniques so also there's an interesting paper i just want to put that out there that there's a couple of papers now the first one published a while back from an emergency department um, which i've got here and I'll, I'll have a link to as well where you can put a um a peripheral line in the internal jugular using uh, the technique they talk about there's a so there's case quite a long case series of patients when they didn't have any serious problems except for failing to get it in or after a while it tissued uh, but no serious infections or um, pneumothoraces or um, arterial punctures and um, this was in an um, uh, emergency department and they used the ultrasound and a longish peripheral line I think it was an 18 gauge but the the caveats to that were that most of them were put in by um, fairly experienced practitioners in the emergency department who who were familiar with using the ultrasound to find vessels and cannulate them in the, in the upper limbs, so they were used to the technique of using an ultrasound to guide peripheral cannulation. And they had also, these people had also done formal central line placements as well, so they were familiar with both the anatomy of the, ve- the venous structures in the neck and they were used to putting peripheral lines with ultrasound. So they were quite successful. I think their success rate was 88%, and there was about 80, 80 patients where they just sort of um, um, you know, placed a peripheral line in. So, but that's an option if you're in a hurry, and you know, you, so you could do that. Um, most, I think, most anaesthetists would be happy with those skills, mm. and then um, you could do, you know, look at putting some um, 
something a bit more permanent and a bit more sturdy once you've got the patient stabilised. I've seen someone do that once, um, a few years ago actually. How, how long a cannula did that place? As the longest you can, I think, is probably safest. And I know that our cannulas that we have at the moment are only the long, longest ones we have are about 48 millimetres or 4.8 centimetres, which we're in the process of trying to find longer ones. Not for this specifically, actually for for um, peripheral lines in a patient, obese patients with you know, quite deep veins and that sort of thing. But I think um, there there must be some longer cannulas out there. If anyone knows um, a good brand, um, please let us know because we're, we're trying to find some for our department. Um, so that's it. So one more thing we're going to talk about, which is um, the I'm going to give a plug for the Alfred Procedures podcast, which is um, which you can find on the um, uh, on the podcast, the Apple Podcast Store, or the Alfred um, Procedures uh, website, where they go through lots of different procedures, and they have one on vascular access, and there's really really good discussion there. Um, and they talk about one of the guys there talks about the HEMS, you know, the um, emergency retrieval service in London and Sydney. And one of the things they do in the field is they place the MAC line in the subclavian. Um, and so I've put in subclavian central lines earlier in my career. I must admit I haven't done many in in, uh, in recent years because it's I think doing an IJ with an ultrasound is so much a bit safer. But their description of doing it is quite good. And uh, you know, as uh, Graham said, the MAC line is such a reliable big vascular access device that um, you can see why they, they teach that. Um, but I guess the thing to know about that is that um, sticking a, or accessing the subclavian vein using the landmark technique is not something that should be done if you're not trained in it. It's very easy to puncture the lung and or the artery, mm. cause all sorts of grief. Um, I mean, I, but, I have but seen. But for people who are familiar with that technique and who are experienced practitioners, that is something to think about and uh, to run through in your head, and perhaps even, you know, have it as a, as an option in extreme situations. Especially people who are really experienced with subclavian placement, like people who work in ICU. You know, our intensive care colleagues probably do the subclavian lines all the time, as well as our cardiac anesthesiology colleagues. Yes. Um, and um, who else? Uh, even maybe nephrology, because a lot of mm. um, dialysis catheters and things yeah. seem to be placed in the uh, subclavian. Or the hematologists. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> um, all right. So I thought we'd finish on a quiz. We've been talking for a little while, so... We, d- we didn't talk about the cut-down, Roger. We didn't. So venous cut-down, I have um, seen a few people do that, and that's a good technique as well, actually. Mm. Uh, it's usually done in the... Um, uh, the lower limb, isn't it, over the, the, the big vessels over, what are they, yeah, so medial, the medial asco- aspect of the, the, saphenous of the, vein, of the wrist. Or the yeah, long saphenous right. vein, but that's I've right. also seen it done in the anti-cubital brachial vein yeah. uh, in the front of the elbow. Yeah, that's a really mm. good option. Um, so, we'll finish with a quiz. Mm-hmm. Last time Graham knew the answer, this time I'm just going to get him to describe, it's a table with some more blood gases. We'll, we'll do something that doesn't involve blood gases later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll just describe it briefly, Graham. I'll put it on the website so people can have a look at it. Okay, so the pH is raised, suggesting an alkalemia. So there's four, and, oh, indi- sorry, four there are, individuals. There are four individuals, and uh, each of them demonstrate a pH either at the upper end of normal or raised. Uh, the PaO2 is low, um, uh, considering it was either... Actually, why don't you describe the mean? Because ah, they've got the averages. Go. They've got a column of the averages. Okay. So the average pH. So there's, there's a mean alkalemia. Yep. There's a an average low PaO2, 
and it's, yep. it's saying it's PaO2, so I assume that's arterial. Yep. The PaCO2 is also low. So it's 13. 13. So the PaO2 is 20, about 25. 25. PaCO2 is low 13. at 13. The bicarbonate is low at around 11. The base yep. excess is... Uh, uh, minus 7. Minus 7. There's a base deficit of yep. 7. The what's, lactate concentration is 2.2. What's the arterial raised? What's the arterial oxygen saturation? Saturation is 54. So the average arterial oxygen saturation is 54. Four. And um, the hemoglobin is pretty high. Yeah, it's about 19.3. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll stop there. Good. Good. Thanks for describing that. Oh, you only want a description. <laughs> I was I was going to try and interpret it. <laughs> no, don't want that. Okay. So okay. So um, yep. If you know the answer, I'll, I'll I'll stick it on the website. If you know the answer, uh, log in and tell us. And uh, we might talk about it next week as well, or, or the next time we have a podcast. All right, thanks, Graham. Are you going to um, show this? Uh... Yep, so there'll be a link to it on the, on the website. Okay. And if so, uh, if you're interested in answering the quiz, go and have a look at it. And then uh, put a comment on the website. Someone put a comment on Facebook last, uh, last quiz, but um, it'd be better if, you, if everyone goes in the same spot. Are you, are you going to include the uh, descriptors below the table? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't do. know. I'll have a look, see if there's any... Um, Clues. Oh, no, the, I probably won't put some of it in there because there's a clue there as to what the answer is. Yeah. All well, right. I, I, I wouldn't have known Thanks, if I looked at those clues. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.